I encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our journey through this precious letter of encouragement. But as we begin our session tonight, I want us to take just a few moments to revisit the context of this powerful letter, because context is the key to both understanding and appreciating any passage of Scripture. The Bible was written to real people who are facing real issues, who are experiencing real threats to their faith and their well-being. Sound familiar? The more things change, the more things remain the same. We are living in a culture that is assaulting our faith, that is assaulting our moral values, that is demeaning our faith and saying it is irrelevant. So the more things change, obviously, the more things remain the same. So let me remind you, Peter is writing in or around 64 AD. Nero had made it his personal mission to exterminate Christianity from the face of the earth. So these believers were experiencing joblessness. No one would hire them. Employers were firing them so they would not be associated with this new sect called the way. Because of joblessness, there was homelessness. There was no means of paying their bills and maintaining their property or their land. There was hunger. They could not afford to feed the families. And on top of all of that was the extreme persecution being faced by the saints. One of the most heinous forms of torture was Nero ordering believers to be rolled in wax, impaled on stakes, and used to light his rose garden at night. That is the kind of suffering these saints were experiencing. It's hard to read this letter from a sterile, analytical, distant perspective when we understand what these poor people were experiencing moment by moment, day by day. And Peter is seeking to offer these suffering saints hope in the midst of their suffering by pointing them to the one who suffered for them and all that his suffering had made available to them, and I might add, to us. Namely, salvation here and heaven hereafter. With a reminder of that context, let us begin our session tonight back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, 
and to this doom they were also appointed. That is the passage that we read last session. Peter, the big fisherman, returns to Jesus, the name that Jesus had entrusted to him, Rock. But when Jesus in Matthew 16 referred to Peter as the rock, he used a very simple term, Petra. It meant a rock out in a field or a mountain range. But Peter, in the passage before us, refers to Jesus as the lithos. That is a very specific stone, a fixed stone, a set stone, a stone put in a specific place for a specific purpose. To those who receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, Peter says Jesus is a living stone. He is a precious stone. He is a choice stone. He is a cornerstone. But to those who reject Jesus Christ as Savior, Peter says to them, he is a rejected stone, he is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Which is a reminder to every one of us that all of eternity hinges on our response to the living stone. And when we encounter Jesus Christ as the living stone, personally, practically, powerfully, we become living stones ourselves. Isn't that cool? That's a wow moment. I can even say it backwards. Wow. Which takes us into verse 5. We've read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, but hone in, zero in on the first phrase in verse 5. You also as living stones. We are lifeless rocks laying useless in the field. But when we come into contact with Christ, we become living stones in the great masterpiece he is building called the church. Remember Jesus' words to Peter the Apostle after his great confession? We looked at the passage last session, Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked his followers, who do men say that I am? There are multiple things that were mentioned. And then Peter declared, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. That was Peter's grand confession that came from the very depths of his soul. And then in Matthew 16, verse 17, we find these words. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, We've heard this all before, but I want to hone in on this next section. Upon this rock, I will build my ecclesion, church, my community of called ones. So what is this church? It is not a structure. It is not a building. It is not an edifice. 
It is not physical in nature. It is spiritual. It is not built on a structural foundation. It is built on a confessional foundation. The confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation upon which the ecclesia, the church, the community of called out ones is going to be built. Back to verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Not a physical house, a spiritual house. Think of it this way. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. But in the New Testament, God has a people for his temple. You hear the difference? In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. But in the New Testament, God has a people for his temple. Not only are we living stones in the spiritual house, we also have a role, a responsibility to fulfill in this spiritual house. Back to verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up sacrifices. We are part of the spiritual house, but we also have a role, a responsibility in this house. You are a holy priesthood. What an incredible term. What an identification. But what an abused identification. I remember often in my younger years during conflict within a certain denomination when people used the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer as a weapon, as a tool to trumpet their liberality. Regardless of what scripture taught, the attitude when confronted was, you can't tell me what I ought to believe. I believe in the priesthood of the believer. I'm my own priest. No one has to tell me what to do or what to believe because I can stand before God myself. That is ridiculous. Because in regard to the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, theologically, biblically, Scripture never focuses on the priesthood of the believer as a privilege or a right, but always as a role or a responsibility. The priesthood of the believer is never to be used as a carte blanche to say, I can believe whatever I want to believe. No, the priesthood of the believer carries with it an incredible responsibility. To be the priest, for example, in the Old Testament, who was selected to enter the Holy of Holies. What an incredible privilege, but what an overwhelming responsibility. Great care was taken in regard to the individual priest who would enter the Holy of Holies. There was ceremonial cleansing that was required. Lest that priest enter the Holy of Holies to represent the people before God and be found unclean. Great preparation occurred. In fact, there was such fear and trepidation 
that the priest who entered the Holy of Holies had a series of bells tied along the hem of their robe, and a rope was tied around their ankle. The priest would enter the Holy of Holies. As long as the people outside heard the bells, they knew the priest was alive. But when the bell stopped, the people would pull on that rope, knowing the priest had not been found clean before God and had been killed by God. Does that sound like privilege? Or does that sound like awesome responsibility? You are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's what Peter says. But you and I do not come before God as priests to offer the blood of bulls and goats or calves. Our spiritual sacrifice is to be far more personal. So what is it? The Apostle Paul answers that question for us in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, Paul writes, I beseech you, that is, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God. Mercy is God not giving me what I do deserve. I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The problem with living sacrifices is we have a great propensity to climb back off the altar. I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy. We have talked about that word hagias often in our studies. It means to be pure, sanctified, set apart for a divine purpose. I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. The word present there is very, very significant, and I do not want to gloss over the import of it. When an individual Jew entered the holy, entered the temple and offered an offering to God, whether it be a, a lamb, a goat, a calf, whatever, the moment that he placed that offering on the altar, he at that moment was relinquishing all rights of ownership. The moment he removed his hands, that offering no longer belonged to the individual. It belonged to God. It was God's and God alone. I beseech you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present, that is, that you put yourself on the altar, remove your hands and say, God, it is no longer mine, it belongs to you. To truly become a living sacrifice, we must come to that point where we're willing to relinquish all rights of ownership of our lives over to God. Are we willing to confess openly, honestly, unapologetically, unequivocally with the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me 
and gave himself for me. That is putting ourselves on the altar as living sacrifices and removing ownership of our lives and saying, God, this is not my life. It is your life. I am not mine. I am yours. And I am not mine. I am yours for your glory and not my own. Are we willing to be that kind of living sacrifice? Not the kind that constantly crawls back off the altar, but the kind that relinquishes all rights of ownership and says, God, I'm not mine, I'm yours. Do what you want to do with my life. We'll see you next session. This study through God's Word is a study for scuba divers. As I shared in our introduction, there are two approaches to God's Word. You can approach God's Word as a snorkeler, or you can approach God's Word as a scuba diver. Snorkelers stay on the surface. They get a panoramic view of what's in the Word. But the scuba diver goes deep. He immerses himself in the water, and he finds the treasures buried among the reefs below. We want to help you find the treasures of God's Word by going deeper. And I hope that we have accomplished that. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Word Power Media Ministry, our email address, wordpowermm at gmx.com. Also, if you have a prayer request, please feel free to reach out to us. Our team would love to lift that prayer uh, to the Lord on your behalf. We consider ourselves family. You may have never been in a room with us face to face. But if you've joined us in this journey through God's Word, we consider you family. And we want to do everything we can to encourage you and to minister to you. Thank you.